1: This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his session entitled, The Gospels.
0: Well, Luke, of course, emphasizing that, that his humanity emphasized when Jesus felt. And John, of course, emphasizes who Jesus really was. You know, the, the, the remarkable film that Mel Gibson produced is a, a, a blessing in many, many ways. But the one, one of the things that it um, doesn't convey is who he really was. The crucifixion of Christ was not a tragedy. It was an achievement. But uh, in any case, uh, we're greatly indebted to Mel for that effort. At the same time, we should recognize that shortcoming. We need to understand who it all, it all takes relevance as to who Jesus Christ is. So, uh, Matthew, what Jesus said, Mark, what He did, Luke, what He felt, John, who He really was. Matthew's writing to the Jew, Mark to the Roman, Luke to the Greek, John to the church. Different focus, different emphasis. The first miracle, being a very Jewish thing, the lepers cleansed, because to a Jew, the leprosy was an emblem of sin. Uh, both the ge- Gentile emphasis, both Roman and Greek, where demon was expelled in, in Mark and uh, demon expelled in Luke. These are the first miracles. John picks for his first miracle to record the water turning to wine, a mystical thing, emphasizing the deity of Christ in a different way altogether. Uh, the last thing, the, uh, Matthew, the Jewish gospel, in a sense, ends as a Jew would focus on the resurrection. Very, or, very focused on that. Mark emphasizes the ascension. Luke emphasizes the promise of the Spirit, and he, in a sense, is setting up his sequel for Luke, Volume 2, the book of Acts, the giving of the Spirit in the the early church. John closes with the promise of the return of Christ, and that sets up his sequel. What's John's sequel? The book of Revelation. So you begin to recognize the evidence of divine all through here. Now remember when we were in Numbers, we talked about the camp of Israel the east, west, south, and north, how they had different ensigns. On the east was the Judah, on west was Ephraim, and and, uh, the south was Reuben, and north was, these were the camps, each camp of three tribes. Of Judah, the emblem was the lion, on the east was the ox, on the south was the man, and the north was the eagle, if you recall. And how interesting it is that these four faces are the four faces of the cherubim. They're also emblematic, if you will, of the four gospels. Lion of the tribe of Judah, the ox being the emblem of service, the emphasis on Mark, man being the son of man, being Luke's emphasis, and the eagle being emblematic, at least, of John. So it's kind of interesting. There's also a different style because uh, Matthew focuses on the groupings. Mark is like a snapshot. It's like a shooting script. And that that was very characteristic of Peter's style anyway. And Luke is, of course, narrative, a very, very uh, well-documented narrative, easily checked out. And, uh, of course, John is the mystical one, as we'll notice as we get into the details. But there's some anticipative pre-announcements that we should be sensitive to. In the upper room, Jesus says to his disciples, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father shall send in my name, he shall teach you all things, and bring all things to your remembrance whatsoever I have said to you." Here's a statement by Jesus Christ that anticipates and authenticates what they did in advance, through that the Holy Spirit will be the one doing this, and he will bring all things to their recall. Uh, so we believe that the four Gospels, were, in fact, the whole New Testament, very supernaturally superintended, in its detail. Something else that Jesus says about the Holy Spirit is He says, Howbeit, when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth, for He shall not speak of Himself. Strange. But whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. Very interesting remark. The Holy Spirit will not speak of Himself. Now, you may recall, as you we went through the Old Testament, we noticed several times there was a type, a typological anticipation in which the Holy Spirit was always represented by an unnamed servant. We saw that in, in Genesis 24 when Eleazar is to gather a bride for, for Isaac. We saw that in the book of Ruth, that an unnamed servant introduces Ruth to Boaz. It's interesting, wherever we see the typological application, the Holy Spirit's always unnamed even when we know by doing some research what his name was. His name was Eliezer, which, which means comforter. So it's interesting how consistent that is. He doesn't speak of himself. He's sort of almost hiding in those allusions. So we have the coming one, sometimes called the second Adam. He's a prophet like Moses. He's a priest like Melchizedek. He's a champion like Joshua. He's an offering like Isaac. He's a king like David. He's a wise counselor like Solomon. He's beloved, then rejected, then exalted son, like Joseph. So we see the coming one anticipated even in a broad typological sense in the main players in the Old Testament. And there are rhetorical devices like this that are delivered by the Holy Spirit. Maybe when we were in Hosea, this is all a little bit of review here, where God says through Hosea, I have also spoken by the prophets, I have multiplied visions and used similitudes by the ministry of the prophets. And indeed, we've explored some of those. Allegories, analogies, metaphors, similes, similitudes, types. There are over 200 different kinds of devices in the Bible. And we've, in, we've cataloged all of those and given you references and examples in the appendix to our book uh, uh, on, the, on the codes and so forth. Now, there are types. We looked at types. The Ark of the Covenant's a type. The sacrifice on the brazen altar the mercy seat in the sanctuary, the water from the rock, the manna from the sky, the brazen serpent lifted up. We've talked about all of these in the Old Testament as types. The Passover lamb is, in a sense, the ultimate one, and the scapegoat. These are all types from the Old Testament. Those are types. That's one form. There's metaphors. The lion of the tribe of Judah is a metaphor. The good shepherd, the lily of the valley, the root out of a dry ground, the fruitful branch. He had no form nor comeliness. Yet he's altogether lovely, a song. So we see these enigmatic allusions that, in a metaphoric sense. Well, moving on, we also notice that there's a lot of healings on the Sabbath. The demoniac in the Capernaum, Peter's mother in law is uh, raised, uh, cast out demons on a Sunday. They're not all done on Shabbat. The impotent man in Jerusalem, the man with the withered hand, the woman bowed together, man with dropsy, man born blind. V- many of these are done on the ones that are recorded, they're probably done on many days, but the ones on the Sabbath were recorded especially because that raises of course these tensions between the leadership at that time and our Lord Himself. Making the point, first of all, that He's the Lord of the Sabbath Himself in any case But also he points out that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And and that is one of the main themes that causes a lot of tension. But let's start focusing on the four Gospels, how they're specific. The Gospel of Matthew, of course, emphasized that Jesus is the the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In the introduction we have the genealogy, the baptism, the temptations and so forth. Then Matthew focuses on primarily the Galilean ministry up north, up at Nazareth and around the Sea of Galilee and so forth we will find that it's a tenfold message. There are ten miracles and ten rejections. Again, this tenfold governmental uh, emphasis. Matthew does pick up the climax of the ministry down in Judea, where he presents, when Jesus presents himself as a king and, of course, we have the crucifixion and the resurrection in the Gospel of Matthew in its 28 chapters, to give you an overview of this thing. Now, it's useful to understand the interval between the Testaments. In about 63 BC, Pompey conquers Judea, the rise of the Roman Empire. Herod Antipater, he's an Edomite, he's appointed king of Judea. And uh, I should mention something. In 40 BC, the Parthian Empire, which is a rival to Rome, to the east, the, the vestige of the old Persian Empire, the Parthians conquered Judea and it's interesting that the Romans in 33 30 years later regain Judea. Herod the Great succeeds Herod Antipater. In 31 BC, six years later, we have the battle of Actium, and That's where Octavian defeats Mark Anthony and the republic becomes an empire. He adopts the name Augustus Caesar and, uh, in 31 BC. Now this leads us to this issue of the Magi. You see, you need to understand that Judea was a buffer province between Rome and the rival Parthians to the east. The Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire in that region were rivals. Rome grows later to be much, much larger, but at this stage, they are rival uh, uh, empires struggling over this buffer state called Judea. It's not even even though Herod was king, he he was in Rome. It was too dangerous to be in Judea. See, the Magi now, in the Parthian Empire, were the hereditary priesthood that was responsible for establishing the king. One of the jobs the priests had was to pick the next king. So the Magi were not kings, but they were very, very, that's where you get the term magistrate. They were a combination religious and administrative uh, role. They're hereditary. They were always Medes in that, in that area, or what we would call today Kurds. When the Magi come to Jerusalem, by this time it's deemed safe enough that Herod is in Jerusalem. But when the Magi show up, it isn't three guys riding camels as we now embody in our traditions. There was a group of we always think there's three because there were three gifts that show up, but that that, that doesn't mean there are three. There might have been more. But more importantly, they would be they would enjoy a military escort. That's why the whole city is in an uproar, because the Magi have arrived. They don't know why. Herod is really nervous. He doesn't know that whether he doesn't know whether or not they're there to precipitate some kind of an incident between the Parthians and Rome. And when they arrive there and he receives the the, the emissary there, the, the emissary says, Where is he that's born King of the Jews? That's a put down. Herod is not Jewish. He's appointed by Rome. These people want to know who's the one that's born to be king. That shakes Herod up. There's a rival on the scene. He has the scribes check. They check Micah 5.2 and find out it's supposed to be Bethlehem and they they give thanks and they go over to Bethlehem to worship Him. He shook up. As soon as they're out of town, he starts making preparation. He has all the Jewish children, two years old and younger, slaughtered, because he assumes that he's going to nail that rival before it gets serious. The whole picture of the Magi is not understood because most people don't realize That was a cabal that was established, we believe, by Daniel when Daniel was put in charge of the Magi five centuries earlier. And when Daniel is put in charge, a Jew, the Persian Empire puts a Jew in charge of that hereditary priesthood, you can imagine how that went over. They set up Daniel 6, the lion's den thing that we all know about. But apparently Daniel entrusted to a subgroup that he could trust a prophecy that they would know when the Messiah was coming. And, and uh, people try to make the star that they're following something astro- astronomical. No, I don't believe so. I believe it was supernatural. That's why they were following it. In fact, it leads them to where they're supposed to go. Planetarium shows try to guess, you know, you know what what star they were following. That, that misses the point. So anyway, uh, let's move on here. The, the, now, the, the, in Matthew, now we do have that record, which is important at the Christmas time and so forth. But uh, we have the Sermon on the Mount, which gives moral standards and motives, critical, critical discourse. We also have this confidential discourse on the second coming of Christ, where four disciples come to Jesus for a private briefing. And uh, Matthew 24 and 25 record what they, what we call, it happened to occur on the Mount of Olives, so we call it the Olivet Discourse. And then we have this fascinating series of parables in Matthew 13, where Jesus gives seven parables that describe that which was not revealed in the Old Testament. People miss that. He, and, and what was not revealed in the Old Testament, Paul tells us in Ephesians 3, was the church. And so, we have this strange kingdom parables in Matthew 13. We have the sower in the four soils, the tares in the wheat, the mustard seed, the woman in the leaven, the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price, and then the dragnet. These are the seven kingdom parables. Why does Jesus speak in parables? The disciples came in that chapter, but verses 10 and 11, He says, the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou of them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Let's, let's understand this. Most of us presume and many commentaries encourage the idea that Jesus spoke in parables to make certain things clear they make it clear to those that have the Spirit. They're actually designed so that only His own will understand Him. These are given to you to know the uh, mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Because He goes on and He quotes from Isaiah actually, for whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have no more abundance, but whosoever hath not from him shall be taken away, even that he hath. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because they seeing, see not, and hearing, they hear not, neither do they understand." And that's that's actually an echo of what's in Isaiah chapter 6 and so on. In other words, what happens at the end, before Matthew 13, the last few verses of Matthew chapter 12 is where they confront him and they accuse him of doing his miracles by Satan. And that causes a shutdown, a whole different style of ministry. From that time on, from the end of Matthew chapter 12 on, Jesus only speaks publicly in terms of parables because He's intending those truths to be confined to His disciples. And uh, He gives us these interesting thir- t- uh, seven parables in Matthew 13. The sower and the four souls, the, the, the tares and the wheat, the mustard seed, the woman loved, and And uh, we want to, in this brief survey, we don't have time to develop all these except to point out that they are internally consistent. The idioms continue throughout to be consistent. What's interesting is when we get to the book of Revelation, we have seven churches, seven letters to seven churches, where the same person, Jesus Christ, who gave the seven parables to his disciples, dictates seven letters to seven churches. And we'll discover, when we, we'll look at that in depth when we get to Revelation, but we'll discover that these seven churches parallel the seven kingdom parables in detail. Well, let's move on to the Gospel of Mark. Mark has no nativity narrative or genealogy because he's dealing with a serv- servanthood. His is longer than Matthew if you exclude the discourses. It's a graphic perspective of an eyewitness. There's names. There's times. There's numbers, location. When he sits on the grass, it's green grass and so forth It's all you'll discover uh, that the, the details are there like a shooting script. He is Peter's amanuensis or what we might call a, a secretary or stographer. And there's evidence that it was translated from the Aramaic. Again, it's uh, the four, there are four voices that announce their mighty, there's the mighty works, the twelve are selected and sent. And then he focuses on the coming climax, the the transfiguration, the final week, and so forth. And then he has a finale of the resurrection and the ascension in in, uh, his gospel. Gospel of Luke, again, he was a doctor. It's the most complete narrative. There are over 20 miracles, 6 of which are unique to Luke's gospel. There are 23 parables in Luke, 18 of them unique to Luke. So Luke is broader in scope, in a sense, than the others, in, uh, in a sense of speaking. He is an authenticated historian and writer. Sir William Ramsey, a skeptic, set out to discredit Luke and he did his research and was astonished to discover that Luke had done his homework and the details in Luke prove out to be confirmable in history. And so he, uh, Luke emerges very much vindicated and uh, Ramsey becomes a believer. He's a Gentile, he's a physician and probably a slave as was common in those days. And Luke is, in a sense, in two volumes. Volume one is the gospel, Luke one, I'll call it, and Luke two is what we call the book of Acts. He apparently got sponsored by a very high official who's called here Theophilus. That could be a title, it might be his name. He obviously is the one that has made it possible for Luke to accompany Paul and to document it all. There are scholars that believe, and there's support for this view, that the documents of Luke are the required documents to Caesar in an appeal. When someone appealed to Caesar as Paul did, the law required that all the history precede him to Rome of all the background. And that was an expensive thing to do in those days and Luke's doing it. If you study Luke carefully from that point of view, it seems to be supportive. You'll notice in Luke, there's always an emphasis when there's an uprising that was the Jews that stirred up the uprising. You'll also notice that in Luke, the centurions are always good guys. If you profile centurions as they show up in Luke, uh, they, they are a great bunch of guys. So, he's the beloved physician. There is more mention of healing uh, in Luke than in Matthew and Mark put together. There are more technical terms in Luke than in the writings of Hippocrates, the famous Greek physician. More medical terms than Hippocrates, the father, who was known as the father of medicine. Included in, interestingly, are obstetrical details of the nativity. He also probably was along with Paul to treat Paul's eye problem. Paul apparently had an ophthalmic malady of some kind. That may be uh, part of Luke's support and service to Paul. So, you know, it's interesting. I love what um, Harry Einstein said of, uh, of Luke. He says, the religion of Israel could produce only a Pharisee. The power of Rome could only produce a Caesar. The philosophy of Greece could only produce an Alexander, who in a sense was an infinite heart. It was to this Greek mind that Luke wrote, he presents Jesus Christ as the perfect man, the universal man, and the very person the Greeks were looking for. I think that's provocative. Very interesting. Very interesting. It's astonishing to me to see how many people publishing books in the public marketplace have no concept of who Jesus Christ is people who present themselves as experts in the Bible or whatever, have no grasp of who He is. It's just a question of doing your homework. Luke, of course, uh, focuses on the incarnation. There are two annunciations. There are two elect mothers and there's two anticipated births. Uh, Luke also focuses on the Galilean ministries, the teachings, the miracles and the twelve being sent. He also focuses on the journey towards Jerusalem and he, uh, he talks about the heir being executed, presented riding a donkey, Passover, Gethsemane, and Golgotha, and so forth. He focused on the seven crises of Christ. His birth, of course, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, his crucifixion, his resurrection, and his ascension. This is the a- analysis by G. Campbell Morgan, and I think it's, uh, it's very valid. Seven, seven major milestones in the, the ministry of Christ. The Gospel of John. He has a prologue. The Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And John talks about the public ministry to the Jews. The signs, the declarations, and the conflicts. Then he talks about his private ministry to his own people, to his own disciples. As John would. John was on the inside, wasn't he? The presages, the uh, anticipations, the departure, the coming of the Spirit. And then he focuses on the tragedy and the triumph. The apprehension, the prosecution, the crucifixion, the burial and the resurrection. It's interesting to realize that virtually more than half of the book is on the last week of Christ's ministry. John gives us a lot of that detail. There are eight miracles that make up the Gospel of John. Turning the water into wine is the first one. What a strange one. And you really won't understand that unless you understand what water was used. It wasn't just some handy water that happened to be in the household where this wedding was taking place. It was the water of purification. Kana's up in the north. What they had for ritual purposes down in Jerusalem, they used the ashes of the red heifer to create water of purification. And that was then in the presence of the priests that were in the various Levitical cities and wherever. And so it was the water of purification that were in these jars that they used. It also was not public. The only people who knew what was going on were the disciples. But He was demonstrating to the disciples by that miracle, turning that water into wine, that He was the Lord of the Torah. That would be very significant to a Jewish mind. It wasn't just water into wine. It was that water that He would presume to use. He also healed the nobleman's son, the curing of the Bethesda uh, paralytic. He fed the five thousand. Then he walked on the water, gave sight to the blind man, the raising of Lazarus, and the draught of the fishes. These are the main. Each one of these give rise to an "I am" statement. I'll come to this. One of the key verses in the Gospel of John. Now, it's obviously, John has the most famous verse of all in chapter three, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Probably the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. It comes out of John. But there's another verse that I think is also a very key verse to understand, and that's John chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. He came unto His own, but His own received Him not. But, as many as received Him, to them gave He the power to become what? The sons of God, even to them that believe on His name. When we were in Genesis chapter 6, we made a big point of the fact that the Ha Elohim phrase in the Old Testament always refers to a direct creation of God. And in the Old Testament, it's generally, it's used, except in one place, it's used of angels. The other one, the only other thing that's a direct creation of God is Adam. Adam was a direct creation of God. You and I are not. We're sons of Adam. There's a difference. and Unless we're born again. See, to them who received Jesus Christ, to them gave He the power to become a direct creation of God, a son of God. But that's the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, but that term is used very precisely that way. See, you and I are not a sons of God unless we're regenerated, until then we're a son of Adam. Adam was a son of God, but he blew it. You and I are sons of Adam unless we receive Jesus Christ in which there's a second experience. and That's what Jesus is going to deal with when he meets with uh, Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Very key concept here. How many did receive him? that's introduced in John. He goes on then to talk about eight uh, eight people that receive him. Peter and Nathaniel and those guys will occur before the end of that chapter. Nicodemus emerges as a key player in chapter 3. The woman uh, at the well in chapter 4, Sychar one. The man born blind in chapter 9. Mary and Martha at Bethany in chapter 11. The 11 apostles are dealt with in 13 and 14. Mary Magdalene in chapter 20 and then Peter in chapter 21. So we find this this progression of the eight that did receive it in various ways under various circumstances, each with its own lessons to be learned as you investigate it, uh, did receive him.
1: You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Missler. For a complete listing of resources available, please contact this station or go to khouse.org. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Until next time, may God richly bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.